greetings programs and welcome to the awesome friday podcast uh, this is december 3rd 2023 uh my name is matthew with me is simon and this week we're talking about two movies which as regular listeners of the show will tell you is shocking which is totally shocking um how are you simon how are things today <laughs> I'm okay. I'm a little frustrated, but um, uh, just just with I, I spent a large amount of money to buy a large thing, and it doesn't fit together properly. And uh, it's very obviously one of the panels is very obviously too big. And I'm talking to the customer services, and they're great, but they keep like talking. They give me stock answers which don't relate to my system, and then they're they're giving me like advice that doesn't relate to my problem. And I just feel like today I'm going to send a video and say. This is this is the thing. Please help me fix it. Um, so that's a little frustrating, but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm sure it will get fixed in the end. I know the company you're dealing with is Arcade One Up, and it's an arcade mm-hmm. cabinet. And um, I can tell you from ex- prior experience as a person who like worked in a store that sold their stuff that their support is actually generally really good. And eventually, they will just send you another piece. Like they, I cannot tell you the number of times that I have like contacted them in the past and been like, "Hey, uh, the button on this panel that a customer bought six months ago wore out," and they're like, "Here's another controller piece." Just yeah, I hope. I hope so. They seem genuinely confused at what I'm trying to describe because it would indicate that one of their manufacturing processes is is broken, is wrong. Because I have a piece that is clearly too big for the unit. And it was all, it was in a sealed box, in a sealed box with the, the things on it. Like, no one got to this before me. So it's going to take some describing, I think. But hopefully it's not a big issue for them. Hmm. It's interesting, too, because I, I have assembled a number of those cabinets. And I've never, I've never run up against anything like you're describing. So I hope it's like a, a one-off for them. Because I think their products I are generally, so. their products are generally, to be fair, quite expensive. To the point where I've yeah. always had second thoughts about and third thoughts and fourth thoughts about even yeah. buying one on clearance. Um, but I don't think they're not worth it. It's just that like I've never really had the spare cash to do so or the impulse yeah. to buy one uh, in such a strong way as you had this week buying that Star Wars cabinet. So it's this my white whale. I feel like I feel like my gaming has come in a full loop. I haven't been feeling as you know. Uh, I, I haven't been feeling gaming in a, in a while. I don't really get really anything from it that I used to um all the games I'm playing are either truck de- delivery very gentle delivery truck games or there's this uh shock uh shock I'm into the game where you have to decipher a language which I'm really really enjoying but anything that that needs any kind of quick reactions or or challenge I'm just bouncing off completely so getting um as if you listen to our patreon episode you'll know that I fell in love with gaming playing Star Victor Star Wars and uh, I feel like I've been chasing that high with all my gaming, and, I, and this might be a nice time to draw draw that circle to a close and just stop spending money on games I don't play anymore. Just play Star Wars. Just play that when, one game over and over just, and over just again. Just play this. Just play this and trucks. I don't, I I basically ignore ninety nine point five percent of my gaming library, like constantly. And uh, there's so few things I play now. And uh, it, it it would be it would be a nice um, it would be a nice end because I've known that I've been falling out of gaming out of love with modern gaming for a while and I don't have the time to game and to to end up with the very expensive but 
to end up with the game that made me love gaming as my own in my home that is as close as I'm ever going to get because it's got the proper yoke and it's got all the sound effects and detailing and all that. Uh, I'm never going to have the original cab, so this is as close as I'm going to get. And uh, maybe it's just a good time to draw that circle and do other things. Like, I want to read more. I want to play more music. I want to do art. I want to watch more movies. I get... Uh, I've been enjoyed, as I've mentioned to you the last couple of years, watching a good movie now or a good TV show now feels like how it used to feel playing a good game. And um, I feel like that's just maybe where my love is now. And I have so little time for any of this that I just want to do the things I love. Obviously, that when mm-hmm. I have time, I, I just want to do things that make me feel good. And, and game, modern gaming doesn't do that me because it has changed like the 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 gaming structures environments that we fell in love with do not exist anymore wholesale that we are not the market anymore um and it has uh mutated into fundamentally a live service where they want to they will charge you a hundred and something dollars for a game and then charge you for every piece of that game as it's released and and people will pay for it so they well, and also so, charge you $150 a year to access the service to make the game playable too. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm bouncing off it. I'm looking around at all the things I have and I'm wondering if I even want them anymore, but Hey, it's weird to think that one of the best values in like gaming today is actually the Apple arcade. Like, and I say that unironically, like that is like, there's, you'd get so much, you get so much for your money. It, it's like going removes, up in price, unfortunately. It just went up in price. Um, it's interesting. This is a whole other discussion, but like, um, so Apple Arcade went up in price. So did um, Apple TV Plus and a few other other things. And like my Apple One subscription subscription went from like thirty nine to forty four dollars or forty five dollars a month mm. or something like that. Mm. Which, to be fair, I think, and I'm going to say this, I actually don't. I actually think it's still a good deal. Like. Um, more in particular, I when the price hikes were announced, which is right after the strikes ended, and they're really trying to spin this as the actor's fault, which is total bullshit. But like, because Netflix is going up in price, Disney Plus is going up in price, and Apple TV Plus is going up in price. And I had some friends, some people I know in a critic group that I'm part of saying that, like, I don't think I'm going to have Apple TV Plus anymore because I just don't think it's worth it. And my response is that, like, of those three, Apple TV Plus is by far the most worth it like they're sort of looking at it as like how much can you get for your money and going from like six to ten dollars is yes it's like a a fairly big percentage wise price hike and apple does not have like a huge back catalog of of other studios stuff right like netflix you're getting netflix originals but you're getting tons of other movies and disney you're getting everything disney's ever made but Netflix is going up. If you want 4K video, Netflix is going up to like $22 a month here in Canada. Uh, whereas Apple TV Plus is all 4K and it's $10 a month. And while it's true, you don't get this other catalog of stuff. You only get Apple TV originals, but they have a super high hit rate. They have several of what I would consider to be the best shows on TV at the moment. Um, and their hit rate for movies is similarly high. Like They seem to really give a shit about the content that they produce. Uh, like, I think the best way to describe it is that they're not trying to be Netflix, they're trying to be HBO. And not HBO Max, but HBO specifically. Um, so I think that, like, 
what I'm this is a big circular thing to say that like yes, Apple stuff went up in price, but I think they're still by far the most worth worthwhile of the prices they're charging for things. It's interesting because PlayStation already... Plus is the same thing. PlayStation Plus I think is a very good deal, and they give you two like otherwise one hundred dollar games a month. But the service is going up to like one hundred and fifty bucks a year, and I don't want to pay for it anymore. Oh. Like I don't think that's worth it. No, um, because not all those games are good. Like if every single yeah. game, if like ninety. Five percent of those games were good games. I would be like, sure, whatever. I never want to have to pay for a game separately again. But you don't get enough of them, and not all of them are good, so it's not. Worth and 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 that's how the first year of PlayStation Plus and Xbox um, Game Pass did exactly that. Their first year was the most unbelievable value every month of incredible games, and then they get people in and, and start sort of draining away the the big big hits. The thing about Apple's interesting um, because we've got access to the um, the press portal, which cuts out all the other UI and just lists everything on the service. And scrolling through that is kind of mind-blowing at the, the quality of things in that service is yeah. incredible. Like you could just watch their stuff and be happy. I'm still, like even things like, I don't know, was Station Eleven just bought by them or did they produce it because station 11 was actually a, an hbo show right hbo they, i think so, so it's they not an apple tv be... oh station 11 wasn't on apple tv no really nope okay let's let's uh okay i got that wrong well what about um for all mankind is that apple produced or did they yeah so for it? for all Ma- for all mankind is technically it's it's an apple tv plus original um it's a co-production with sony sony tv sony sony right. pictures television because yeah the, the quality of that i've not found anything on netflix that would replicate that that kind of quality like squid game was very very good um but in, in terms of pure like viewing quality the stuff on on apples mind-blowing but going back to your apple arcade point apple arcade is pretty good the a better mobile game service that loads of people sleep on because they haven't quite got the uh, dedicated app sorted yet is the netflix game service for ios that's integrated into the netflix um subscription so if you subscribe to netflix you already have an ios game library that rivals any other digital game library, including Game Pass, the number of high-quality games on Netflix iOS um, game subscription is unbelievable, the games they've got. And they've just got the license for the first um, three 3D GTA games. So GTA 3, uh, Vice City, and San Andreas, all going to be all the remastered versions included in the Netflix subscription. I'm sorry, and... you're telling me I can play Grand Theft Auto, Vice City... Yes. On on my iPad via Netflix. Yes. You I knew go, the service go. was good, but now I need to go and I'm just going to You just keep talking. I'm just going to grab my you, iPod, my iPad for I'm not open. I'm not sure it's out yet. It's, I think it's coming in December at some point. Um you've got both Oxen Freeze. You've got incredible um uh real-time strategy called Breach and Clear. You've got um oh god, some of my favorite games. There's a fantastic um Indian uh, Indo-Asian set adventure game on there, which I can't remember the name, but it's fantastic. There's so many great games on there. And the problem is that if you you can go to your iOS Netflix video app and find the subcategory and go that way, but you can't download them from there. You can only do it from the App Store. They desperately need a standalone game front app, which I'm sure is coming 
because they've just released an app for controllers. But if you go to the iOS, uh, sorry, the App Store on your iPad and um, search for Netflix, so you bring up the Netflix app and then tap Netflix as the publisher, it brings up all of their published apps, which includes all of their games, and then just go through that list of games and hit download on uh, as many of them as you want. Um, Immortality is on there. Probably the best game of last year is on there, which is a game about match cutting um a, an actress's previous movies and within the match cuts are an extra I, I can't say anything more than that it's a visual puzzle game that is incredible like some of the best games of the last couple of years are on that service but you have to go dig for it um, and that's included in your Netflix sub- subscription the, the, the quality of the games on their games subscription service is worth the money alone even without any of the video content so into the breach. Really, yeah, I'm really interested in Netflix's strategy because they are. It's almost like they're the shadow. They're doing shadow drops for everything. Uh, they're really not promoting their the game. So many game players don't know about the service, or because it's it's a bit of a uh, a pain to access it. You can't access it on your TV. So the iOS games only pop up on your iOS app as a subcategory. You, the best way to, as I said, to, to find them is to go digging into the App Store and they bring up the list. Oxenfree 1 is one of my all-time favorite games, and that's on there. Oxenfree 2 is on there as well. Uh, I'm sure if I brought up the list now, I could wax lyrical about so many games it's, they've got on there. It's not as many as you as I sort of expected based on the way you're talking about it, but there's a lot of quality yeah. games in here, yes. That, that's exactly the thing. So there's not as many as Apple Arcade, but I've played most Apple Arcade games and maybe two or three of them um, want, would uh, make me want to keep playing. But on the Netflix service, you've got Dead Cells, which is coming out. And remember, you can sync a, uh, either an Xbox pad or a PS, uh, any PlayStation pad to your iPad. Storyteller is on there which is one of uh, the best narrative games I've ever played, where you build um, elements. You you, you build a, uh, like a, a fairy tale to have a certain conclusion based on draggable elements that change each other in real time, depending on your previous elements. So it's all about like the structure of narration and how to build a narrative. It's incredible. I love that we're just um, not really podcasting at the moment. I'm just looking at this list while you describe the list to me. Yeah, it's um, fantastic. But yeah, um, those Sonic... look pretty good. There's definitely not as much as Apple Arcade. Um, no. And I think better. that, like, I also don't, I'm just going to say this. I think it's a very good list of games. I don't think I would subscribe to Netflix just to get it, though. Whereas, like, I would definitely, if I wasn't already oh, subscribed yeah. to Apple One because I'm all in on their shit, like, I would subscribe to Apple Arcade to get some of those games just to have them. Uh, uh, I'm the other know, way like, around. I wouldn't. I've just cancelled Apple Arcade because I'm not using it. But I would like Kentucky Route Zeroes on there. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, beat 'em ups on there. Twelve Minutes is on there. Like I just well, like for for contrast, like in Apple Arcade, like I play I play games like um, Mini Metro and Grindstone like all the time. Oh, like yeah, all yeah. the time. Um, like if you were like look at my like list of games I play frequently, like. I would I would be willing to bet that over if you look at like the last four years, like um, Grindstone would be near the top and Mini Metro would be near the top. 
Grindstone's really, really good, but I hit a wall in that game like hard. I just well, the, but here's the thing that's great about it that I'm not sure you get this even with the Netflix one is that just in the last couple of months they added a bunch of stuff to Grindstone, like a bunch, like a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. There's a whole other like alternate path you can take now with all new puzzles and a whole new point, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And then stuff like there's a great Star Trek game, um, Galaga Wars. Uh, like there's just, there's just a ton of stuff. Uh, we're sort of rambling off point, but like, yeah, it's um. The point is that like there's there's better ways to do this. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what we, let's get into our movies. Yeah, maybe we should stop rambling and start talking about movies. So we're going to talk about two movies before we do. Just uh, <laughs> just to get it out of the way ahead of time. Uh, just a reminder that if you do like the show, if you do like the series, if you like the rambling you've heard so far, which has been totally off topic, uh, um. Uh, we do, uh, you can support us with either a subscription on your podcasting platform of choice, uh, or a high review, or we do have a Patreon and for as little as two bucks a month Canadian, which I'm pretty sure is approximately 84 cents American. Um, you can support us and get a bonus episode every week too. This week we talked about, uh, actually probably the reason we're talking about games now is we talked about like formative gaming experiences and digital libraries. So we're sort of stayed on point. Um, but with that, we're going to get into the main show. So we're talking this week, uh, this weekend has been the Whistler Film Festival 2023, which I think is one of the more interesting festivals that happens in the region that we live in. Um, and it's usually, and this year is no exception, a great showcase for Canadian cinema. So naturally we're going to talk about one big American release first or second, um, but we're going to talk about one Canadian release as well. That's having its world premiere at the Whistler film festival. And just for the record, the um, Whistler film festival is great. It has a ton of great content, ton of great films. And uh, it is playing in person. I believe in, I think it's almost over, but it's online until I think the 17th of December. So there's lots of chances for you to go and see lots of great Canadian films via this festival. And I highly encourage you to do so. Um, in addition to this episode, I'll have several, hopefully several reviews up with that shelf in the next week or so, uh, for other stuff I've seen. Um, but with that, let's jump in. So we're going to talk about, uh, a Canadian film first. Uh, so let's do that. I feel like I've lost my momentum for some reason, but, um, we're going to talk about a film that's had its world premiere at Worcester Film Festival. And that film is called The Burning Season. And it is directed by Sean Garrity, uh, who has directed things you've probably heard of if you've heard of Canadian cinema, um, including My Awkward Sexual Adventure. Um, uh, what else did he do? The End of Sex. The End of Sex last year with uh, uh, actually his recurring collaborator, Jonas Chernick, who stars in this one and also co-wrote this one. Um, this one also stars Sarah Canning and... I'm sure I'm going to say his name wrong, but Joe Pingu. Pingu? Mm, I, um, <laughs> I don't know. I am not 100% sure. And uh, Tanisha, it's interesting that I'm less intimidated by the name Themavonska. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. Um, and this concerns. So, the fil- way the film plays out is super interesting. It tells the story of an affair between Jonas Chernick's character, who's called JB. He owns a resort that, and he's engaged to a woman called Poppy, played by Ms. Thamavongsa. And Sarah Canning and Joe 
and Joe Pingu play these, this character who come to the resort every summer <clears throat> and every summer Jonas Chernick's character and Sarah Canning's character have an affair. And the film plays out in reverse. There are seven chapters in a prologue, but it starts with chapter seven and it ends with the prologue, which is super interesting, super interesting choice. Um, and as you go sort of back in time and some of the time jumps are like momentary and some of them are years. Um, but as you sort of go back in time, the nature of these relationships changes. Um, and it is just splendidly acted, uh, in particular by Sarah Canning, I would say as a woman who her past, which is tied to Jonas Chernick's past, um, so her name is Elena, and she and Jonas Turner's character, JB, have this murky at the start, but obviously illuminated by the end, passed together. And her ability to portray just that fine line of a woman who like seems in control, but has also never been in control and is sort of always walking that edge uh, of her own destiny it is super interesting and super satisfying the way it pays off toward the end. Um. Joe, Joe Pingu is similarly spectacular as the guy who doesn't really have a lot to do except show up and be supportive of Alina's character. Um, and Jonas Chernick, I think, is reliable. Unfortunately, I think that he has he's probably the weak link in the acting chain. Not to say that he's bad, but he has a couple of like couple of scenes that sort of bounced off me pretty hard. But um, I'd rather focus on how good Sarah Canning is in the story. And I don't really want to tell you anything else about it because I want you to see it. And I feel like going in blind is probably the best way to do that. Um, I, don't, I don't know. How do you feel about it? I really liked it. How do you feel about it? So uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so successful in um, the way it chose to tell its story, which I, I joked with you that we should choose this movie because it will give me something to rant about when I hate when I go on about how the narrative doesn't work, because it's told backwards. It's told, it starts with chapter five and it goes back seven. through the chapters. Seven, sorry. Yep. Is it really seven? Okay. Seven chapters um, in the prologue, told in reverse. It's wonderful. And um, it, it's it's a big swing to do it that way. And you're for me, I'm always questioning like why why what what has it done to deserve that? big swing like to, why is it using that is it just for effect or is it a part of the story and um i was just blown away by this film i thought it was so well written in particular brilliantly written and um by most of the cast exquisitely acted as well but sarah canning is the the standout in this cast she was uh, just fantastic i've never seen her in anything before Apparently she was in Once Upon a Time and she's done some like uh, romantic stuff and I think she was in Nancy Drew. But... So you, you've definitely seen her in something before because she was one of the apes in War for the Planet of the Apes. Oh, really? Was she? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, funnily enough, I didn't recognize her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> but she, I, I hope this is her springboard and I hope this movie um, gets her whatever the Canadian Acting Awards are called down the screen Canadian screen acting awards? Canadian screen awards her? yeah right I hope I hope there's some kind of recognition here that elevates her career and and puts her in more stuff that we can watch because she is so nuanced in this role and the the great thing about 
the way this is written and acted is that because you start really at the end um, and they allude to her, her and JB's relationship, the true nature of that relationship, they kind of tease you with certain things without confirming it until the, an early chapter, which is of, of course the end of the movie. So actually very intelligently takes you through some very dark possibilities with their relationship. Um, and the, uh, the way she kind of acts within that sort of hit, um, again, it's another movie that needs the, or the, the, the person watching to actually watch. And she plays with that. She plays with these like implications and also she's got some incredibly just great line reads and reactions to reads as well. I just couldn't take my eyes off her. I thought she was just incredible. <clears throat> and um, and uh, I really like um, uh, Joe. <laughs> Is it Pingu? Ping Pingu. He's in the Expanse as well. I just find him uh, very very watchable, and he's got a brilliant natural delivery style. I and. All of their characters, because it the, the the chapters don't run like scene to scene. There's time jumps between them, and the characters are really really good at portraying different years of their characters and different parts of their relationship. Uh, yeah, I thought, uh, Tanisha, oh, Thema Von's. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, she was brilliant as well. And, yeah, uh, most most of the time jumps are just one year because. Yes, you know Tom and Alina, Joe and Sarah, they come up to this resort once a year, ever at the same time of year. So most of the chapters are just that part of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And there's one or two yeah. that are one that's much shorter, and then one that's also like a much bigger time jump. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. Every it's not just the nuance in like the like Sarah Canning's character. She has some difficult stuff she needs to sort of portray before you understand what she's portraying and i think she does a really great job of it but also you're right like the in between like even just the 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 performance of one year to the next going in reverse is also super well accomplished mm-hmm. and i sort of hate that i even pointed out that i think that joe Chernick, jonas Chernick wasn't the best because i think he's 99 mm-hmm. good there's really just one scene where i was like really that seems like a maybe you should have done one more take and there's one scene that requires him to be it's the, it's like the first scene in the movie that requires him to be a lot bigger um he's high on cocaine and he's under a ton of stress you don't really understand why he's under stress at that point um and he probably goes a little too big with it but i think in the rest of the movie he's great personally and also it's hard to fault him because he also wrote this he co-wrote this and it's so yeah, it's well written, written. It so is. well written and it doesn't I, hurt I just... It also doesn't hurt that, like, this was filmed at mostly Algonquin Park in Ontario, and holy shit, that place is gorgeous. Like, it doesn't help that they're acting against this, like... And, like, the, the place they are is very much a character in the story as well, and mm-hmm. it's a gorgeous place to look at and for them to just exist in in the background. And it's gorgeously shot, like, in the same way that Falcon Lake was gorgeously shot. Like, they don't just go to that location. The, the filmmaker really uses that environment. Yeah. And lights it and shoots it beautifully. There's a similar lake. At one point, I was like, "Is this Falcon Lake? Is this the same lake?" Because it just looks as good. It looks beautiful. Maybe there's just more than one beautiful lake in Canada. Who knows? But I mean, the, um, I can I can personally attest to the fact that there is more than one beautiful <laughs> lake in Canada. 
Yes. Excellent. Well, it's probably a different lake. The I I like Jonas Sherwick is is doing the work. I just wish he he um my same feedback as when I watched Ashgrove. I just sometimes wish he uh, he was a bit smaller sometimes, a bit more natural. I just don't I don't believe him all the time. I actually didn't mind the beginning. It was the quieter moments in the middle and, and the end that I I just didn't believe it because he just he, I just want him to oh, do yeah. less. Totally, like, totally the opposite less. for me. The all yeah. every single, most of the scenes he has are one on one with Sarah Canning, um, at various stages in this illicit affair that they are having together, and I thought that all of those scenes were great. Like all of the scenes that really matter are great. It's really just one or two for me where I was a little bit like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, I really. And I, I hate that we're focusing on this because, like, it's such a minor point. I just know that we kind of disagree about it. We end up yeah. focusing on it. Um, but we're I, I just, just to be clear, listeners, we are picking nits. Like, we are. Yeah. Like, this is not a deal breaker. Like, he is not bad. Um, no, no, it's not just, at all. It's just that, like, it's hard. It's hard when someone who is good is amongst other people who are yeah. fucking great. You know? Everyone, he, the, the, there's a um, a couple of actors introduced towards the end that you don't see before who are just, and that's a big risk as well. And they're great. And um, the things they, all of the actors in this um, have to do some pretty personal things with other uh, cast members. And there's a lot of trust on screen. And there's a, there's a lot of actors giving themselves completely to the vision of the director. And there's no way the actors would have found what they were doing without that the su- support of a cast and cr- uh, the crew around that, especially with the younger actors as well. Um, it's a very it's a very honest picture as well. And I found the duplicity of the uh, the the various cheating relationships as they go through the years both relatable and utterly devastating in how authentic they are. And um, it, it's, it's that pit of the stomach feeling that you know that it's wrong, but it just feels right. And we've all, in our stupid days, we've all been in that situation. And I thought it's very authentic. And, and the, the needfulness from one person to another, even when they can't have the other person, I thought was portrayed brilliantly just blew me away what a great film and um i really hope it it does the rounds and i I really hope it gets some bigger exposure it's not just a good canadian film i i i hope like brother as well i just want the profile to be bigger like home is clearly making some great movies Um, i think it's actually one of the I have a couple of other things I want to say just about the structure, but I think staying on this point for the moment, I think this is actually one of the other reasons why, like, even if, even if there is a character in this and just to be clear in that other film, you mentioned Ashgrove, we disagreed entirely about Jonas Chernick at that moment, in that moment. Um, I thought he was great in that film. Um, um, But it's also hard to fault him because he is working a lot. He works almost exclusively in Canada and he seems to give a shit about Canadian cinema. And it's really hard to fault anyone who meets even one of those things. <laughs> Someone who like clearly cares about making movies, about telling stories, and who wants to do it at home and does it at home. I think he's, I don't, he's not like, I don't think he's, he's not a household name. But like, he's one of those guys who I just like 100% appreciate exists 
and and Sean Garrity, and there's a few other um, guys like that who have this sort of like industry, and they all work together. And I think uh, I just love that they're doing it. To be totally honest, um, oh. it's hard, and especially when I think most most of their output has been good. Like Sean Garrity, I think My Awkward Sexual Adventure and the the End of Sex are both fun. Um, and another one that Jonas Chernick was in a couple of years ago called James versus his future self, um, is a really fun movie, uh, which is a very timey wimey time travel movie. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, they're just doing good work and I want to see them keep doing it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I want more. I want more. Absolutely. But to switch back to the movie we're talking about, the other thing I found is that so the structure is, I think, is genius. I think the way they've decided to tell the story, I think you're correct. I think it's a really big swing. And I think it serves the narrative the way they've told it. And it's also super refreshing because a lesser film would have just done the two narratives then and now thing that we have seen roughly a bazillion times since the premiere of Lost. Um, like a lesser film would have like the inciting incident playing out with younger actors in parallel to the present moment playing out. And this one, I think by a, Mm -hmm. by choosing a different structure is just refreshing and B by better, better illuminating their relationship through multiple years of said relationship makes the ending, Mm -hmm. the ending in particular just hit that much harder. Mm -hmm. The the ultimate revelation hits uh, of the nature of their connection and why they are, like why they're connected to one another and how they're connected to one another all hits so much harder when it's finally revealed at the end because you have all of this context. Um, and it's just wonderful. Yeah. It's, I think you said you hope it, it's up for some Canadian screen awards. I think Whistler is actually has a pretty decent history of Canadian films getting awards because it's, it's toward the end of the film season for Canada. Uh, so yeah. And it is a CSA qualifying festival. So lots of other things that I've seen here have gone on to win or at least be nominated for CSAs in the past. And I hope this is one of them. I hope it's nominated for a ton of awards. But you're right, Sarah Canning in particular. And yeah. um, I hope I hope, the, I hope the writers and directors also get nominated because it's it's great. And I really, yes. I really hope it makes the round. I hope it gets more than just a limited release here. I think I, I hope it really gets like a, a wide release and I hope it gets something somewhere else like I, it's it's i want people to see this movie can i ask a really stupid question yes does canada present every year at the oscars their entry for best international film uh yes but we've missed the cutoff um does, so canada counts as as it should international film so um the answer to this is yes, but usually it's films that are in French because it's best foreign language feature is the category, right? Um, oh, it, oh, it's it's is that how it's worded? Foreign language? Yeah. Not international? Oh, well, that was... So, yeah, like usually... And I'm pretty sure there's been Canadian films. I'd have to go triple check to say no, for sure. Got... No, it used um, to be used as best foreign language film before 2020, and now it's known as best international feature. Yeah. Uh, hang on. But I think, like, didn't Denny Villeneuve win one of these? Or he was at least nominated for one? Uh, yeah, so, like, Denny Sarkand won in 2003. 
for Les Invasions Barbares, or Barbarian Invasions, sorry. Uh, I think that's the only one we've actually, as a we, the Royal Canadian we, uh, the only one we've actually won. Um, but uh, Water was nominated. That was a deep meta. Uh, Denis Villeneuve was nominated for Incendie, which is an amazing movie you should definitely watch. Um, our submission this year is a film called Rojek. Um, but the shortlist hasn't been announced yet. So we haven't had a nomination since 2016 when Xavier Dolan uh, was yeah. made. He didn't get nominated. He made the shortlist uh, for It's Only the End of the World. Our last actual nomination was War Witch in 20, 2012. Hmm. See, I would love to see this film nominated for Best International Film. It just feels completely right and it would raise its profile and it's a film that deserves to be seen by uh especially audiences you only watch a certain kind of movie like it's so successful it's so good at what it does Mm -hmm. um and it's so representative of something outside of that loop of american movies that um yeah we don't our uh, canadian cinema does not often get represented at the oscars but when it when it's a film like this when it's an english language film it's almost always just going to be in the, the the main categories like i think i would have to double check this as well but the last canadian film i think nominated for best picture uh, i don't think it, i don't think sweeter after was even nominated for best picture i know it was up for best director for adam mcgoyan but i don't think it was nominated for best picture um let's just ask google for best picture oscars <clears throat> Yeah, like we have lots of Canadians who have won Oscars, but not a lot of Canadian films who have won Oscars, if that makes sense. If, that, if I'm phrasing that well. Mm. Yeah, they're all French language. Yeah, and oh, that's where... That's actually interesting because like one of the things um, it's only I think, and to be fair, I have not been paying as close attention to this before the last, say, five or six years, but like, we were definitely in a moment for a long time where Canadian, French Canadian cinema was our best cinema. And that is, I don't think that is, I don't think it's fair to say it's exactly false, but I think we have a much more diverse slate of talent today. Like, there's a lot better English language stuff coming out of Canada right now than there was even 10 years ago. And I also think that, you know, our, I think our best stuff today is coming out of our indigenous storytelling personally. Yeah. Some um, great stuff. So, yeah, but it, I think this is, this is exactly the kind of thing that like, it's definitely going to be up for CSAs. I don't think it'll make yeah. a big enough splash to be um, Oscar nominated or even represented to be totally honest. But yeah. uh, it's the type of thing where you look at it and you go, yeah, like we make, we make good films. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. But like, technically speaking, like, technically speaking, last year we had a Canadian nominee for Best Picture because Avatar was produced by a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> that and is the, very technically speaking. And the, the year before that, the year before that, uh, Dune 
was made by and co-funded by mm -hmm. Canadian sources, and The Power of the Dog was co-produced by Canadian sources. So technically, we have nominees every year. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, I just want exposure. I don't feel that the Canadian films get the exposure they deserve on the wider, uh, wider stage outside of Canada. Like, there's people in the know, but I yeah, don't think I anyone... So no one I in think... American cinema is talking about Brother or Polaris or the fantastic Canadian films that have come out over the last couple of years. So I think this this is a much larger discussion that we're running over time on. But the thing to remember about the Oscars is that ultimately speaking, they are they are presented as the sort of creme de la creme of film awards, but ultimately they are a regional awards show. Mm. Like we don't hear as much about Canadian film as maybe we should. And that's because our neighbor to the South is so goddamn loud. <laughs> like mm. we are next door to the biggest movie industry in the world. And those films have tons of marketing money. The Canadian film just doesn't. Mm. And it's uh, it's a shame because what you just said about Canadian film um, is also true. There's a ton of Spanish film you and I have never heard of that is great. Mm. There's a ton of mm. French films that you and I have never heard of that is great. There's a ton of insert country here films that you yeah. and I have never heard of that is great. And uh, like I've said this before, but like every year that we do, every year that I've covered the Vancouver Film Festival, I have seen a French film, either a French film in particular that I have fallen completely in love with that I am then never able to see again because it just never gets released here, ever. And a couple years ago, I saw a really great, like really, really, really great Spanish political thriller called The Realm that is just not available here. And like was like Michael Clayton level good. Um and that's I don't know if you've seen Michael Clayton, but for me that's super high praise. That is an amazing film. Mm. Um and it's just not available. It just hasn't it's been sporadically available on certain streaming services. And sometimes you get the French stuff if you are willing to pay like I think it's sixteen dollars a month for there's a French language streaming service in Quebec you can technically access here in BC. And sometimes you get some of the French stuff if you're willing to pay for that. Um, but I don't actually speak enough French to make that worthwhile. Uh, so Criterion doesn't have this as a category in the international... They've got Criterion is very curated, right? So they don't release everything. They just release mm. things they consider to be significant. Um. Mm -hmm. So like the the next the big Criterion release for this month or next month maybe is they're releasing on UHD Mean Streets, which is Martin Scorsese's debut oh, feature. But right. on their streaming service, rather than physical, they've got a pretty good. But again, it's highly curated, right? Like last month's last month's big curated list was Precode Divas, which is a great list, but they're all movies from the thirties. Um, there is actually a great list. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but there's a great list on there right now. And you're right. They occasionally have stuff more like this. They have Joe. You know what's on Criterion Channel right now? Josie and the Pussycats. As it I've should. I've never, never seen it. <laughs> um, but you're is right. There's good? not. There's there's not often a wide selection of like. Of, mm. Not to say anything is insignificant, but there's not often a wide selection of not significant foreign films, mm -hmm. right? Like it's one of those things where like certain things make it through and 99% doesn't. Mm -hmm. 
So it's frustrating, but I do think, yes. you know, it's part of the reason why when I, when I'm doing the planning for this show, I do try to like include Canadian titles because I feel like it's mm. at least partly our responsibility as Canadian podcasters to talk about mm. Canadian film. And, uh, I don't think I do a good enough job of it, to be totally honest. I think there's definitely more we could be watching, more we could be talking about. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're off topic, and uh, the burning season is great, and it's playing as part yeah. of this film festival right now. And I don't want it coming out, um, but for me, it is a four-star film. Yeah, me too. Four stars. And uh, it's interesting, because I'm at the time of the year where I'm starting to have to talk about like best of the year lists and it's going to be a struggle to rejigger what was already my best of the year list and maybe fit this one in <laughs> so mm-hmm. do do with that i'm, what you will. I'm maybe godzilla <laughs> it's true I'm seeing, I'm seeing godzilla minus one right after we record this and that might be number one with oh. a bullet who knows i'm i'm a pretty easy lay for godzilla but uh, <laughs> you're a, you are a slut for godzilla it's true yeah yeah it's true Anyway, okay. show so four stars each for yeah. the burning season. Definitely seek mm-hmm. it out. Definitely see it. It is wonderful. And mm-hmm. uh, let us know what you think. Uh, yes. We're going to move on now, though, to a bigger release and an American release. Um, and that is Todd Haynes' new, uh, I think it would be fair to call it a relationship drama slash super bleak <laughs> black comedy. Um, <laughs> starring... Why don't you, Simon? Why don't you take? Us <laughs> why don't you take um, us through um, May December, starring uh, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman, and well, uh, as, Charles Melton. Melton. As you probably guessed, for, yes. As you probably guessed from the title, this does uh, center around a relationship with one much older partner, one much younger partner. And um, you, this is another one of these films where you have to watch to find out what's going on because you learn uh, gradually that Julia Moore is playing a, a, a woman called Gracie and she is in a relationship with Charles Melton's character, Joe, who is significantly younger than her. And um, the film begins as famous actress Elizabeth Barry, Berry, sorry, played by famous actress Natalie Portman arrives at Julianne's house because um, Elizabeth is an actress who is going to play Gracie in a biopic. And at the beginning, we don't know why Gracie is important. We just know that she's been on TV in some capacity. And then through Elizabeth's research, we learn that she basically is infamous for having an illicit relationship with this at that time, underage boy, and she did jail time for it. And they ended up getting married and having children, and now they've been together 20-something years. And so it's, uh, um, it's the, with the biopic coming around, Elizabeth has come to do uh, a very method approach to uh, acting as this character, and she's basically spending as much time with Gracie as possible to learn not just her physical and verbal um, intonations and quirks, but also trying to get into her mindset of what she was thinking then and how she felt now. And um, the whole thing basically is a very bleak unfolding of all the issues um, that Gracie has. She's clearly traumatized from um, this uh, incident that happened to her, but she considers herself 
somewhat to be the victim in it. Um, Joe, played by Charles Melton from Riverdale, who does his absolute best to look unattractive in this movie, because the whole point about this kid is that he's he's now grown up, but he's never, because of his traumatic uh, underage seduction, <laughs> like statutory rape, um, he may have some issues that start to come out as well. And he's never really matured as a man. So Charles Melton does the thing where he he... He, his posture is completely changed from his usual posture and he's very boyish but not in a cheeky charming way he's he's clearly uh not developed um as many of his peers because he's been in this relationship so the, word, the word you're looking for is stunted he is stunted he is stunted. he is stunted to the point where his own children who are yes. in the story? His own, ch- his youngest two children, who are twins, are about are graduating high school, and they are more emotionally mature than he is. Yes, absolutely, and um, and it's interesting because it kind of positions the story that Natalie Portman's the the eye of the audience going into this nest and disrupting things and bringing all of these things to the to the front, and lots of animosity between Gracie's. Um, previous marriage and previous kids and her current kids and uh it, all of this affects the relationship between gracie and joe and also gracie's mental ability is very apparently knife edge to just completely falling apart but what's interesting what i really really liked about this film is that we start learning that uh, Natalie Portman's character is not the innocent eye of the audience here and that she has her own ideas, she has her own approaches and maybe she's worse than everyone else as well. So every, um, everyone's got issues in this film and it's super, super dark and it's brilliantly acted. And uh, in particular, uh, Charles Melton, I thought, was standout for me. And... That's pretty impressive because you got a TV actor up against Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, arguably doing some of the best work of their careers, and still Charles Melton. It was the standout for me because mm-hmm. he the amount of nuance he put into this. He's really done the work with this character, and is uh, portrays him in a beautifully authentic way and with real heart and with real. He's really good at portraying that boy like like innocence and that trauma of never being like the whole point is that girls didn't pay him attention until this woman did and he was unable to resist her like sexually as well and um in real life charles melton in riverdale he's gorgeous he's this gorgeous gorgeous man and with an incredible body and in this movie he has he really does the work to portray a person who is gorgeous but feel like they're still a child and he he, um physically and with his voice he does fantastic work in this and and it's believable as well it's not like oh he's got glasses on so he feels he's ugly it's it's really really believable yeah yeah it's really believable Uh, and the way he uh he, he treats himself as well incredibly impressive turn by him and and huge potential for him as well. Did, I'm I'm not sure how I felt about the film in general. I'm not sure. 
like it's it's not designed to be a satisfying watch and there's definitely some questions left unanswered and uh i i think the the way it's written and acted is spectacular but i came out of it not sure how i felt about it as a whole does that make sense like what's your take here so i have a question before i go into whatever ramble i'm going to um in the early 90s did the news about mary kay letourneau make it to the uk i've never heard that name before so this film is based on mary kay letourneau who was a teacher in the united states in the early 90s who very famously uh-huh. slept with a grade seven kid who was about 12 years old and once she got out of jail married him and stayed married with him married to him I think they finally divorced in 2019, if I remember correctly. And she later died. She died of cancer, I think, in 2020. Um, But, like, this is not a true story, but it is heavily based on an actual thing that was, like, a big cultural moment in North America. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, so, and, like, I don't know how kids who are, like, say, like, Gen Z or whatever after that is are going to react to this. But as someone who is old enough to have remembered all of those news stories, like, this this movie is amazing. This movie is a masterwork. <laughs> um, I think it's probably Todd Haynes' best film, definitely his best film since Carol. Um, and, def- and definitely, I think, in the conversation for one of his best films, very generally speaking. You're right. It is not designed to be satisfying um especially the place in which it ends and it's really ultimately it's hard to talk about without spoiling the intentions of each Mm. character however um yeah how am i going to say this natalie portman is wonderful and i think you're right she starts out being this as the sort of like innocent lens for the audience to look through but at about the halfway point the focus of the film shifts onto her and reveals who she really is in a really interesting way. And she, and you realize that she's actually, she's actually been that the whole time. Like if you were to go back and watch it again, you'd be like, Oh yeah. Like she hasn't actually like changed her portrayal. It's just been the, the way the film focuses on her changes and it brings new things to light. And I think that that's genius. Julianne Moore is doing, I think, who has done a lot of films with Todd Haynes um, is doing, I think some career best work um, in this film as this woman who would love to have you believe that she's the victim, but is so, I don't know what the right way to describe it is. I know there's a word for it, but it's not coming to me, but she is so toxic but super nice about it. Like Mm. the way she manipulates all of the characters around her in at every point whilst still, whilst still being at least for the first half kind of sympathetic is amazing. Mm. I think she's legitimately wonderful. I think that like as much as Charles Melton is the one who I think I agree is the standout. I think that Julianne Moore is the one who's going to win all the awards. If anything is going to win, if anyone's going to win awards from this movie, like big ticket awards, it's going to be Julianne Moore. Um, Cause she's wonderful. And like, especially there's one scene right at the very end um, where she just delivers a line to Natalie Portman. That is so cold 
and so calculated as to be legitimately shocking, even though you can see it coming from a mile away. And similarly, like Natalie Portman, her her turn in the second half in particular, once she's sort of revealed to the other characters, and in, in particular, how she interacts with Charles Melton is something else to behold. And there's one line, again, one line in particular that she delivers to Charles Melton's oh, character that is just God. devastating. Like, oh. not just to, like, not just to him, because it's a devastating, targeted, like, destruction of him as a person, but it's devastating to the audience because it's so well delivered that oh. it's, it's, I wish we could talk about it in depth without spoiling it because it's such a wonderful moment, a wonderful moment of, terribleness in the film but yeah but melton's the standout he has to do so much with so little he's not the focus of the story as the real life uh, the kid wasn't um for i think good reason because his life would have been destroyed forever um but he has to do so much with so little and he has to portray it all through a lens of i don't really understand what i'm feeling and he has a scene towards the end where he grapples with the fact that he was raped and taken advantage of, and he's grappling with it for what is presented as being probably the first time. And it is one of the best acted scenes of the year, mm -hmm. I would say uh, with him and Julian Moore. Um, it is again, I don't, it's not, I want to say it's a wonderful film, but it's a difficult film. It's a difficult film to watch but it is a rewarding film to watch if only for the performances and much like the burning season, even though it's all very heightened, like one of my favorite things about this film is that when you're watching it, a lot of the cinematography and especially the score, the score is both wonderful and maybe the funniest thing in the movie because it all evokes oh, all of, yeah. all of the technical aspects of this film evoke like a nineties made for TV totally schlocky um, B movie like the acting isn't this like the acting is occasion the acting is occasionally this as well where you're like oh yeah I saw this at like two in the morning in 1996 on cable TV um, the acting is occasionally that as well including one of Julianne Moore's first scenes where like the reason mm -hmm. they say that this movie's not a comedy but it is bleakly and darkly comedic just in the way a the way the music interacts with the story and also some of the line reads are just ridiculous like purposefully ridiculous there's a scene in the beginning where they're planning for a party and julianne moore opens a fridge and says i don't think we have enough hot dogs and it is one of the funniest things i've seen all year <laughs> like i don't i don't know how else to say it it's just it is so inappropriately it's, and it's only funny because it's so inappropriate in the moment it's it's such a, a clever filmmaking narrative technique as well to have that what the fuck moment with that huge orchestral like swell of minor keys to leading to her saying we don't have enough hot dogs as an audience yeah. it, it completely subverts our expectations from the beginning and makes you question what the fuck is going on like why yeah. why did that just happen and it underlines what's coming where it with her character, everything is of equal urgency and importance. And the moments yeah. where little things happen and she has a full like panic attack breakdown are absolutely like non-acted, authentic, like panic attack. Yeah. Uh to, to the point of of 
Uh, I don't know. I, I, she's incredible in this, and she doesn't overplay yeah. it, which I think is so vital. And it's so well filmed. It really is so clever. Yeah. But again, like at the same time, so yeah, like ever, all of this just speaks to the fact that her character is a complete control freak. Um, but just staying on the filmmaking for a second, like it's amazing how often you watch this film and you're th- and you think to yourself, wow, like the cinematography is second to none. I have not oh. seen a film that is this well shot maybe all year. And then other times you think to yourself, am I watching an episode of the Red Shoe Diaries? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Red like, Shoe Diaries. Because like there are definitely scenes with this like, again this like I don't know how other way how any other way to describe it, but the score is the 90sest TV score I've ever heard in a film. And a lot of the cinematography at points looks like the kind of shitty video like videotaped footage you would get in a nineties made for TV movie. And the whole thing is it should like, it's, it's so discordant that it shouldn't work. Yeah. But I think it's interesting to me that it works so well for you because it was such a, such a big story in the nineties that it actually kind of enhanced it for me. Right. But I don't know how it's interesting to me that it works so well for you because without that context, I don't, I'm not sure that it hangs together. Very well. Oh, interesting. So, and we've had we had very similar things in the UK. It, we had a big one as well. I can't remember her name. I mean, there's so much to unpack in this film. That's what I really enjoyed about it as well. Is that even when it finished, I, there's there's so many layers that you can interpret this film on, like the the uh, the superficiality of the daytime TV drama that's being concocted in amongst this real life drama but also uh, as someone who spent a lot, long time in acting training and with actors i thought it was on on a very strong level a complete takedown of the method approach to playing actors like and and how presumptuous and um uh, actors are who go into a situation into into trauma just to absorb the research for their characters and who have really no moral standing on, on anything that's happening around them. They just, Oh yeah. They just, they just want to take everything they can from the moment. Yeah. Like Natalie, uh, Natalie Portman's character definitely subscribes to the Jared Leto version of acting. This is, this is absolutely that. And uh, if you told me, yeah, if you told me that her character in this film, in a previous film, sent, was playing a villain and sent dead rats to her co-workers, I would not be surprised. <laughs> um, and you're right, it's a very successful, like, wow, she's a beloved actress, and the first half makes you believe that, and the second act shows you how she achieves it, and it's awful. Yeah, totally. I and think maybe the, if, there's, if there's a fault there, if there's a fault there at all, it might be just that it doesn't really do a good job of telling you that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but that's also maybe beyond the scope of the film. So I think it, it effectively uses it as a way to show us that Natalie Portman's a terrible person. And I yeah. But that, I guess, I, I guess what I'm saying though, is that like, I think it does a very good job of showing you that this particular character is a terrible person, but if it's, if we're going to frame it as a takedown of this style of like acting and performance, then it doesn't show any alternatives and therefore is maybe not as successful as it could be at that. No, I don't agree. I don't think it needs to. I think the context is there for you. It's a film that again needs needs intelligence. It assumes intelligence in the audience in that it to watch and to 
to pick up on the cues. And I think enough, like it's so, um, it is slightly stereotypical, but there are so many actors who do approach roles in exactly the same way, who do have the same complete lack of moral standing when it comes to the amounts of research they will pull from people's trauma in order to act better. And it turns out it's a really shitty daytime TV drama, which is like the cherry on the cake. It's like all that, all that work for that. Um, mm-hmm. It was, uh, it, it that was funny to me, like the, uh, the extent it did that. And I just loved Natalie Portman. I loved her performance in this. And she's, she's so subtly different in this to really anything else I've seen her in. And um, she's really got a range that we keep forgetting how good Natalie Portman is. Um, I never forget uh, that. I never, I never forget that. <laughs> she is. You know what, there's, so, not true story. Point. Natalie Portman is almost exactly the same age as me, and has been one of my longest standing oh, like oh, crushes uh, in the world. Absolutely. There's there's a moment in this film where she um, she does a monologue straight to camera based on a, a love letter that was found. And so she's using the Gracie's own words and she shifts into this vulnerability, this victim vulnerability, uh, hugely emotional. And you can see the little girl in Leon at the end of Leon. One of my all time favorite film moments is the end of Leon where she is, um, trying to justify certain things to Danny. Who's the handler? Danny. Um, Aiello. Aiello. And she she falls apart on camera, and that vulnerability is still there. You can still see that little girl, and she just turns it on, and she turns it off, and it's just incredible to watch. I mean, that scene in particular is incredible to watch. Like yeah. she's she is so good. I feel like part of the reason I like this too is, and maybe the last film we talked about is that they could also very easily have been like stage plays, like the way they are staged and shot and performed and i always respond really well to that um and i think like if you were to if you were to consider the the characters she plays in closer especially toward the Mm -hmm. end um Mm -hmm. would be maybe a comparison to this although Mm -hmm. with um there's a much more nuanced discussion there because I don't think the character in Closer is as morally bankrupt as the character in this film. Yeah, no, I um, uh, But, like, that that change and that assertiveness and that ability to just turn on and off the things she needs to turn on and off are, are there in a way that I think are satisfying. Yes. Before we... I know we need to wrap this up because we're, we're going on. I, it sounds, sounds like we both love this film, but there's one a filmmaking technique that I thought was fantastic, which goes back to the, the approach of the, the um, interactions, almost like a play, is that for many, many two-person interactions, the camera basically sat and did nothing over one person's shoulder. So you saw only one side of the conversation and many, many, many other films and directors would do a standard shot reverse shot where you cut back and forth. You see a little reaction, you see the delivery and so on. And it was just so satisfying, especially when you start unpacking Natalie Portman's character and you start really seeing her reactions to what's being said to her. But it was also done for Julianne Moore's focus as well in other times. And to have that, kind of confidence in filmmaking where you just place the camera in front of your actor and you let them do the work and you just mm-hmm. off all of their reactions because it makes the story better was incredible i thought yeah there's a there's a number of scenes in this where 
people are standing in front of mirrors and the cameras the mirror so they're they're looking right at you right at the camera and all of those scenes are great all of them are well performed and uh yeah it turns out that todd haynes um is a good director he's a he's a good director of actors for sure have i have i seen anything he's directed before you must have have. you must have i haven't Uh, seen velvet gold and i haven't seen oh he did the kate the uh the bob dylan thing with different people playing bob dylan yeah i'm not there carol was probably his most lauded film Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo is good. Uh, Wonderstruck is a very... I, I didn't really resonate with it in the same way that I resonated with some of his other films, but it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful sweet movie. Um, oh, it's well with Julia Moore a lot. That's cool. Yeah, and Velvet Goldmine... Not Velvet Goldmine. Um, I mean, Velvet Goldmine is a very singular piece of work, I would say. You're either going to vibe with it or you're not. Mm-hmm. But Far From Heaven is I think another one in which he directed um, Julianne Moore to some career best work. I think she won awards. I don't think she won an Oscar for it, but I think she won, she won like the Venice, the it's the Volpe cup. Let me just look at it. Like she won the Volpe cup or the, whatever the the Paris, the can one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It won a ton of indie spirits. And it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and a number of Golden Globes, but didn't win any. But it won. Julianne Moore Dennis, and Dennis Quaid both won Independent Spirit Awards. Julianne Moore won a Critics' Choice, uh, LA Critics, National Society of Film Critics. Um, where else? Like it, it won a t- like it's a, it's a great film, and it's a, it's another one that like doesn't really seem at first blush to be what it is actually about. Like it's a very layered film as well. I haven't seen any of his other films. Is the cinematography in May December typical of how he usually shoots his films? Um, I would say yes, although I don't know. Let's just see here. Who is the cinematographer here? Christopher Blovelt. And I'm gonna say yes. I think he's. I think he's very considered in the way he does this. But I think he works with different cinematographers. I don't think he has like one guy. You know, he's not like the Janusz Kaminski to uh, Todd Haynes, mm-hmm. uh, Spielberg, right? So yeah, I think Edward Lockman did a couple with him. Yeah, I think I think this might actually be only the first or second time he's worked with this particular cinematographer. But that's not to say... Oh, he does, actually. He's worked with Edward Lockman a lot. Mm-hmm. Actually, it looks like he's worked with Edward Lockman on almost every film to date, except for this one in Velvet Goldmine. So do with that with what you will. Um, but I would still say that like he definitely has a, a distinct voice, and he definitely is very careful about how how things are shot, for sure, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, so how many how many stars so I, for you? I, I went in today thinking three, but with the more we've talked about it and listening to myself talk about it, I think it's probably four. Where yeah, are you landing with this? No, it's definitely a four star movie. Yeah. Like it's um it can be difficult to watch, um, but it is one of the one of the best acted things of the year. Like it's definitely gonna be worth watching to be like you should watch this film 
Um, and Charles Melton has already won a Gotham Award, which is a small, like an independent cinema award for his portrayal here. And you okay. should watch this film because it's going to be the, the thing where you're like, oh, like I never watched Riverdale. So this is now the thing where I'm like, oh, this kid's going places. This kid is, this yeah. guy's going to do the work. This, this guy has all the, everything ahead of him now. And I can't yeah, wait to great. see more of it. And that's, and again, that's saying, a, like you said before, that's saying a lot when Natalie Portman and Julianne fucking Moore are doing some of the best work of their careers. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how well and how much it's another one where there's a ton of trust on screen from the entire filmmaking, from the entire production. And I, I, it's, yeah, I think this is pretty much must see TV, must, must see TV or must see film for 2023 at this point. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Good. That being said, I, I don't know. We're at the end of the year. I don't know that this would exactly make my best of the year list, but it's uh, mm. it's definitely mm. up there. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, last two movies: The Burning Season, currently playing at Whistler Film Festival um, through December seventeenth, I believe it's is the festival. So hopefully, it's in their online selections. But if it's not, keep an eye out for it because it is great. And May, December is actually on Netflix now. It uh, played as part of the Whistler Film Festival as well. If you want to see it in a theater, uh, in a cinema, uh, you can do so in Whistler uh, through, oh, to, yeah. through exactly. tomorrow, I believe. And uh, But otherwise, it is on Netflix now. Uh, and you can watch it if you have Netflix. Um, but that's going to be the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, one last time, if you like what you hear, if you like the show, if you like our commentary, if you like the timbre of our voices uh, you can support us either with a <clears throat> subscription on your podcasting platform of choice uh, or a, a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice or we have a patreon at patreon.com slash mc simpson and the <clears throat> the entry level version of that is only two dollars canadian a month which is approximately 68 cents american a month or about 25 whatever the sense version of a euro is uh that's what it is <laughs> um uh euro coin i don't know i don't know you should know your country famously didn't go on to the euro so why would i know if we didn't use the euro well they're next door you know you should know what your neighbors are up to <laughs> um sense. but it's approximately 18p so there for the british people in the audience <laughs> <laughs> bargain um and you get uh, you get to support us, and you also get a bonus episode. Again, this week we talked about digital libraries and gaming experiences and uh, all kinds of good stuff. If you want to get a, an idea what that's like, you can listen to last week's bonus episode, uh, which was made free for everyone to listen to. So go ahead and do that. Um, if you'd like to follow up with us, we'd love to hear what you thought about all of the stuff we've talked about today, and you can do so by following us on the socials. We are at awesome Friday at awesome Friday CA on basically all the platforms. Uh, I am at Matthew AF on all the platforms and Simon is not on the platforms anymore. So there's that, um, yes. but you can find us at our homepages. Simon is at is temporary pen.com minus stretched dot CA. And do check out the homepage for this episode, which will be in the show notes at awesomefriday.ca, uh, where you'll be able to find our ratings in number of stars and also links you can follow to stream these films or buy or rent them. Um, and if you use those links, those are things that also help us keep the lights on. They are powered by Just Watch, and they will update as availability changes. So you can always go to the page 
and find <laughs> find uh, where you can watch these things. Sorry, sorry. If you're hearing Matt's voice change, he's being aggressively attacked by his cat. Like this, the most aggressive love I've ever seen in my life. It's wonderful. You have like pushing everything everywhere. She uh, she definitely has me wrapped around her little finger. It would be <laughs> if we had a video show, she would be the star. <laughs> um, but that's it. That's our show. Last but not least, we are here in Vancouver on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. Um, thank you one last time for listening and all your support. And uh, thank you for joining us on this awesome Friday. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>